Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests in my home to do this podcast in person are, are my friends Valerie and Dennis Barton. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Um, Valerie will be doing this podcast. Dennis may chime in. He's a supportive husband here, but it's really Valerie sharing her story. And as background, um, the third book I'm writing is in, uh, called Improving Latter-day Saint Culture, Volume 2. It'll be out sometime at the end of 2023 or early 2024. And one of the chapters I wanted to write um, is about supporting couples that have just different experiences with children. No children, later children, adopted children, special needs children. Um, and I went to social media and solicited stories. And this one of the stories I got um, really moved me. It was from Valerie Barton. And she falls into multiple of these camps. And her story will be part of the book. But I just felt impressed to have her on the podcast now um, so that others could learn from her story. It's a brave story. As more background, um, Valerie. And Dennis, um, Valerie um, probably expected she'd be married in her 20s, and she was married at 39, and she's going to talk about being single as a Latter-day Saint and just navigating that. And then Valerie and Dennis married when Valerie was 29, Dennis is 28. 30s. Oh, yeah, let's get that decade right. <laughs> I'm 39 and 38. Beautiful love story. And then they'll talk about... Um, their process to have children and then um, choosing to adopt a child. And so Valerie's stories turned out very different than probably what she thought it would turn out as a Maya maid or as a Laurel or some of those groups we used to name um, as younger um, Latter-day Saints. And our, this is really brave of Valerie. She's going to share things she's only shared with Dennis, her husband. And this is sacred ground for for all of us to be invited to hear Valerie's story. It's brave. There's some real pain here, but our hope in sharing this story is we'll help all of us better support um, couples that have different experiences of Latter-day Saints and also those of you that are walking a road um, that is sometimes really difficult around being single or children. Valerie's story will help you. Is that okay for an introduction, Valerie? Sure, yeah. We've said a prayer, and Valerie's prepared just to share her story. So um, I'll just turn it over to you to start talking. Okay. Let me just say that this wonderful couple is from Magna, um, Utah, and that's where I served in my YSA assignment. And I grew to love Magna. I had some incorrect um, assumptions about Magna that once I got to meet people in Magna, they're some of the finest people on the planet, and took me in and loved me and supported me and. Um, so I have a tender, I'm reuniting with my Magna heritage in this podcast. <laughs> and so anybody that knows about Magna knows what I'm talking about. It's an incredible place to live. So now you're up. I won't right. interrupt you again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Richard. We really appreciate you having, having us here. Um, uh, I've been listening to the podcast for years and it's just, it's just an honor to be sharing the microphone with such, um, incredible humans, uh, people that you've interviewed. I, I have a lot of respect for them uh, being brave and sharing their stories. Um, I am a crier by nature, so I will probably cry a lot <laughs> during okay. this. This won't come as any surprise to anyone who knows me, but, um, but I do want to, I do want to frame 
up my story with a few uh, important notes. Um, I don't want anybody to take from what I'm going to share that um, that I'm not happy with my husband and daughter. They mean the absolute world to me. Um, sharing the struggles that I had as a single person and as a and um, as a childless woman in the church uh, doesn't diminish how I feel about them or the blessing that they are in my life. Um, one of my favorite podcasters, Susan Hinckley from Elashi, said it. Um, she says, I have a thousand regrets and none at all. And this resonates with me. I have a thousand regrets and I wouldn't change a thing with how my life is right now. Um, the second thing is that I don't have any answers for anybody else. Um, this is just how things progressed and felt to me personally. And I hope that it might resonate with some people. Um, and the third thing is that I really don't want to say anything that would diminish or devalue the importance of motherhood. Um, there's just an incredible joy and incredible pain that is, that that is encompassed in motherhood. It's, um, it's not one dimensional. Uh, many women experience really complicated emotions surrounding motherhood, uh, whether you have five biological children or one adopted child or no children at all. It's complicated for everybody. There's lots of joy, lots of misery and everything in between. Um, so I just, I don't want to diminish anything about motherhood in the things that I'm going to share. Um, so my background, I was, I was raised in a pretty conservative and orthodox home. Um, excuse me. I was a third of four kids, uh, two sisters and a brother. So there were three of us girls. Thank you. And, um, I was generally happy, uh, relatively obedient, have to say relatively, um, peaceful child. Uh, my mom was a stay at home mom. My dad would hold as many jobs as he needed to, uh, in order to meet our obligations. Um, I have a handful of very happy memories. I don't have, I don't have a lot of memories because my brain doesn't work that way. I don't really <laughs> store memory very well. Um, but I know my family loved me. Um, and for the most part, I was relatively unbothered by things that went on, um, by much of anything. We went to church every Sunday. We went to every activity, every mutual night. We only missed church if we were sick. Um, I studied my scriptures. I graduated seminary and institute, and I tried really hard to do things right. Um, definitely not perfectly, but I, but I tried hard. In this environment, uh, my mom was a really big influence on me. Um, she taught me how important it was to be present for your kids. And in her experience, that was being a stay-at-home mother. Um, she, I'll share two examples of how, of how she, um, this choice that she made to stay home made a really big impact on me. Uh, the first one was when I was in junior high, there was a dress code that said that girl shorts couldn't be any shorter than like your middle finger. If you kneel down on the ground and they don't go past your middle finger, then you're, um, out of dress code. So, um, I got called up to the front of the class and I had to kneel down in front of everybody, which is a whole other story about, you know, uh, uh, girls and their bodies. But, um, but I, they were half an inch too short. And so I was forced to call my mom. And, and one of the things that was really poignant to me was that I knew I wasn't going to interrupt her at work. Um, I knew that 
she'd be available. She'd be there. She'd come down to the school with a new pair of pants or she'd take me home and change or whatever. But I knew that she was there. I was confident that I wasn't disturbing her at work. Um, and then in high school, um, uh, I arrived at school one day and I had forgotten that I was supposed to bring cookies for a choir party. And so I called my mom in the morning and I was just so upset that I had missed, you know, I'd forgotten to grab cookies. So I asked her, I said, can you just run by the store and grab some cookies for me and bring them to choir? Well, my mom, as a, as a professional stay at home mother, my mom arrived, my mom arrived with uh, three dozen freshly baked chocolate chip from scratch cookies with a <laughs> gallon of milk. Um, and I can still picture her walking into the room and we smelled those cookies and I swear they were still hot from the oven. Um, and I was just so proud of her. Um, and I felt like, no, this is my mom. I'm her biggest priority. She knows, or she is here for me to help me and support me. Um, so those were really big experiences for me. Um, she was available. She talked about quantity time being just as important as quality time because you never know when you're, when the important questions are going to come up that you want to be the one to answer those for your kids. And, um, she had really high expectations for us as far as the gospel is concerned. She, uh, she was, she didn't want to lose us in the eternities. And so she wanted us to be married and have kids and have all the blessings of eternity. Um, like the gospel teaches, um, I know that she loved us. Um, and she, here's where I'm going to get a little emotional. She passed away a little over a year ago. Um, so indulging in these positive memories of her is really helpful for me. Um, even with this example, as a child and youth, I developed pretty early on some very unhealthy codependency um, and people-pleasing behaviors. Uh, nearly everything I did was motivated by my desire to obtain positive reactions and encouragement, um, particularly from my parents and my church leaders. Um, I went along with what other people wanted. Uh, I thought um, very much in black and white. Um, I didn't really even know how to listen to what I wanted, um, because I was always listening to what other people wanted, uh, for me. Um, there wasn't any room in my worldview for any colorful or outside the box thinking. Um, everything was either good or bad, right or wrong, um, black or white. Um, so shortly after graduating high school, the, the proclamation on the family was delivered in uh, general conference in 1995. Well, in the women's session before general conference. And there were words that stuck out to me in my very black and white, very orthodox thinking. Uh, the first one was that it's a commandment to multiply and replenish the earth. Um, marriage is essential that by divine design, fathers are to preside over and provide the necessities of life. Mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. And then the final thing for me was we warn that individuals who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. And so that solidified in my very black and white, very codependent mind that the thing that I needed to do was 
be a wife and a mom and nothing else. Um, I didn't, I didn't even know how to bring anything else into my brain. That was just, that set me on the course. Um, and that, that was anything else would have been a failure to me. So, um, I fully anticipated to be married fairly quickly out of high school. Um, I, I attended the singles ward the Sunday after I graduated. Um, and then the overarching theme of the rest of the, <laughs> the next 20 years was waiting, just waiting for my husband, waiting for my kids, waiting to be in the role that I was meant to be in as a, as a woman. Um, I made a lot of, I made a lot of decisions based on, based on that desire to just, to be a wife and a mother. Um, I, I'll share one experience that I had that kind of, uh, illustrates my mindset. Um, somewhere around the turn of the century, 2000, 2001, I decided to go back to school. I had already gotten an associate's degree. Um, and then I took a long break. Um, <laughs> but since I didn't have a family yet, uh, I applied to the Arizona State University School of Music for a vocal performance degree. Um, that had been my focus in junior college. Um, and of course I had to audition and it was competitive, but I submitted a cassette tape and I got invited to audition. Um, I believed that I was capable and strong enough to get accepted. Um, I loved singing. There was like, for me being on stage and using my, my voice and my passion in that way, just, it made me come alive. It felt so good to me. Um, and so I loved it. So if I wasn't married and didn't have kids, then that would be just fine. Um, but that audition was a huge defining moment for me. I, um, uh, I tanked, I just, I bombed the audition. Um, the panel of three professors, they started out by asking me just the routine questions of, you know, what's your education like? What have your, what has your training been? And whatever came out of my mouth was so unintelligible and just some of it was outright untrue. And I tried to backtrack and correct. And I was so flustered and so discombobulated. I had no idea what was going on in my mouth. <laughs> it was just all coming out. Just, I couldn't stop it. And um, I still remember the looks on their faces during this interview process. And they were very confused, um, as was I. But I opened my mouth to sing. And my voice was, it was the worst. <laughs> I had, n I've never sung that badly, even in rehearsal. Um, I was squeaky. I was, I couldn't control my breath. I had, it was just, it was terrible. It was the worst. I mean, think of American Idol auditions and the ones they highlight that are really terrible. That was this audition. It was uh -huh. the worst. Um, but I had prayed beforehand. I had studied, I had prepared, and I couldn't understand why I tanked that audition. Um, now, this past year, the last six months, I've, I've been diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. And I have since learned that what happened to me on stage that day was very much associated with um, ADHD. Um, 
ADHDers can can dissociate in high stress situations, and that's what it was. I completely dissociated. I didn't have any connection with my body or my brain was just checked out. And so I I know now <laughs> what that was. But at the time, since I had prayed about it and then I tanked, I thought I believed in my core that that was a sign from heaven that I should not pursue a career that would take me away from a husband and children nights and weekends. And so that, I mean, that put a stop to any pursuit of musical education. Um, And it was really, that was really difficult for me, but it was, it was God telling me I was supposed to be a wife and a mom. Um, And there are plenty of wives and moms who are performers (laughs) Um, which I know now, but I didn't know then. Um, so I ended up with an associate degree or excuse me, a bachelor's degree from Arizona state in political science, which is really nothing to me now. I mean, it just, I do nothing with it. There was no point to that degree, but in my brain, I could get a job where I would be home nights and weekends, or I could just be a stay at home mom. And if I needed to fall back on something, then there it was. Um, but there are a lot of instances like that, um, during my single years where, uh, my decisions were based on that idea that the only thing that I could do that would be of worth, um, would be a stay at home mom. And I didn't really understand that I had my own worth and that I could chart my own course. Um, It was always, education was always something to fall back on, something to use just in case the wife and mom route didn't work out. Um, It wasn't ever something that I could just do for myself because I'm, because I'm worth it. Because I deserve education. I deserve progression. Um, I deserve to use my talents and skills. It was always, oh, just in case, just in case. And so that was really painful for me. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently with uh, Dr. Julie Hanks, where she she was answering some frequently asked questions and a a woman had, a single woman had written in um, wondering about how she gets over this waiting thing. And Dr. Hanks says, Stop putting things off that you love just because you don't have a partner or you're waiting for children. You can stop waiting. Your life is here. And I wish I had understood that when I was single. That's a powerful section. Thank you. Um, so during, during this time, um, I chose to receive my endowment when I was 23 after a, a very sacred experience that, um, that I had. But when I went to the temple, it got really complicated really fast. Um, and uh, a lot of women will remember if you attended the temple prior to the recent changes that were made, that there was a lot in the temple experience that focused on um, your spousal relationship, particularly with women. Women were made a covenant through their husband to God and women were, um, were told that they, their eternity was 
tied to their marriage relationship, tied to their spouse, their husband. And so when I would go as a single woman, um, I really, it was really hard every time to, to believe and feel like my access to God was contingent on having a man in my life that was my spouse and was also worthy. Um, so that contributed to my feelings of, you know, who, how could I possibly be worth anything to God? If this is, if I'm supposed to approach him through my husband, how, who am I? I don't even have a husband. So, um, it was really painful. Um, the ironic thing in this is that, um, the sacred experience that I had that prompted me to go to the temple in the first place really felt like God was telling me that I was worth something on my own. But then I get into the temple and, <laughs> and I hear things that are different. It was just extremely complicated for me. And I couldn't really talk about it with anybody because I would be unfaithful. And, you know, my coping, my, my codependency and my people pleasing, I didn't want to be unfaithful. Um, I wanted to be the example of the, you know, the single woman who had everything together and who didn't worry about a thing because God will make it work out and everything will be fine. Um, but it was really hard to go to the temple um, and have that, that feeling that God knew me and loved me minimized every time I went when I heard the words of the endowment that referred to having a husband when the men made no such covenant through their wife. And it just felt very, very painful for me. Um, and then if I would ever, if I would talk about being sad or lonely during this time, I, I would get a lot of that. Um, this is going to sound really harsh, but I'd get a lot of the, it'll work out when you're dead. Um, which I know a lot of people, um, I know a lot of your listeners get that, you know, it'll work out in the afterlife. It'll, it'll work out when you're dead. And it just hurts to feel like there's no solution. There's no end to this loneliness and that I would just, it'll work out when you're dead. Um, the no blessing will be withheld quote that gets used to gloss over the very real problems that we have here and now um, were really painful and difficult. It's, it brought me a lot of hopelessness because I didn't see any end to this feeling in this life. Um, and then to complicate things because of a lot of the ambiguous doctrines about eternal polygamy that have not yet been addressed or resolved by the church. Um, the thought of it'll work out when you're dead thing always brought up. Am I going to be assigned as a second, third, fourth wife to somebody else, to somebody, to a righteous man or whatever? Um, I mean, if I felt erased here, I mean, how could, how, how much worth do I have if the solution is, oh, you get to be a, a polygamous wife in the afterlife? So, um, you had Carolyn Pearson on just a little bit ago in her book, the ghost of eternal polygamy was something that just really spoke to my soul because it was so painful to feel like that was my eternal destiny. 
That's another really brave segment to share so much of that raw pain that you experience and kind of this conflict where you'd <clears throat> feel impressions to go to the temple and knew that God loved you, but the temple experience, I like the word used, is complicated. Yes. <laughs> there sounds like there's things that were okay or helpful and things that were difficult. And I've just learned, listeners, and you've heard me talk about this, just to honor how people feel and sit with them in the complexity of their situation and not point to the next life. And just, it's just so complicated. And I read that book from Carolyn Pearson, and I had none of the perspective of how other people might be experiencing um, the temple and eternal polygamy or the possibility of being as a man sealed to multiple women. And that book opened my eyes to how difficult that can be for some people. And you sharing that, you know, I understand, wow, that's a real thing. And that's painful and wondering it's hard here, but it might still be hard there. And so it's just complex. Yeah. And you don't really have a community, you know, to open up about this and sort of and so you're doing, you've been walking a brave road for a long time and keep <laughs> Thank and you. Just as a note, Dennis is sitting here next to Valerie and he's got his hand. There's just this beautiful kind of love story. I wish this was video sometimes. <laughs> they're just so supportive of each other. Dennis is just right here, totally present. They're holding hands and I'm just grateful this couple has each other in their lives. And Dennis is totally present. And knows everything that Valerie's been sharing firsthand. And I'm sure maybe that's part of the love story you have is that Dennis got all this stuff and they're both shaking your head. And we probably won't, that's not in the script right now, but I'm guessing that that's part of Dennis's gift to this relationship is he got you and loved yes. you and sort of could talk about this stuff. And absolutely. Okay. So yeah. keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. He's, he's definitely my rock. And um, <laughs> we, we have shared a lot of, of, hard stuff together. So I'm, I'm really grateful for him. Um, so i I finally did end up serving a mission. Um, I reported to the MTC on my 29th birthday. Uh, so I was an old maid when I got there, um, 10 years older than 90% of the people there. Uh, but I had, it was an amazing experience. I wouldn't change it. Um, I served in San Diego with primarily Hispanic population. And I just, I fell in love with them. I fell in love with them. And um, coming from a, an extremely conservative and black and white background, um, serving with them really, really helped bring some color into my life. Just, and to understand that the world is just, it's not black and white. It's full of color. Um, so I started to feel a little bit that I could carve out a space for myself as a single woman in the church. I didn't have any answers. I didn't have any, I didn't know what the future would hold for me. I didn't have any eternity things resolved, but I felt like I could maybe, you know, there might be a place for me here. Um, I dated a man, I dated a lot of people that were all wrong for me. Um, <laughs> but I dated one particular man for a little while shortly after my mission. and. He actually did propose to me, um, which was pretty shocking. <laughs> um, but I felt in my gut that that wasn't really what I, he wasn't what I wanted. He didn't have the kind of life that I wanted and we didn't have the connection that I wanted. Um, I, I grew up on Pride and Prejudice, um, Jane Austen, <laughs> and um, 
one of the things that Lizzie Bennett says is that nothing but the very deepest love will induce me into matrimony. And I just, I felt that and I didn't have that with him. And so, um, so I, I knew I wanted to say no, but then I had, you know, a quote by Spencer W. Kimball going through my brain that it is, it is certain that almost any good man and any good woman can have happiness and a successful marriage if both are willing to pay the price. And so there's this feeling of, well, just get married. You're both good people. Why not get married? Uh, marriage is right. And it's marriage that you want. But then over here I have, no, it's love that I want. <laughs> and so it was, it was this conflict. And, but I, I kind of knew I was going to say no. Um, and I came home, I told my mom about it and she rightly counseled me to pray about it. And at the time I was really kind of annoyed because I didn't want to pray about it because I already knew what I wanted to do. But she encouraged me to go to the temple and, and think about it. And as complicated as the temple was for me, that really wasn't the place that I wanted to be <laughs> at the time. And, but I followed her advice and I went to the temple and I, um, that session, I didn't hear a single word until at one point there's a scripture that's read in um, Moses chapter three, verse seven. And the scripture just blasted out at me. Um, Nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself for it is given unto thee. And I just felt this feeling wash over me that God trusted me to make this choice for myself. And he wasn't going to tell me what to do. And I just felt so empowered by that, that God trusted me. I could do what I wanted to do. I didn't have to follow anybody else's advice. I didn't have to get married just to get married. I didn't, I could do what I wanted and I didn't want to marry that man. Um, and so I turned him down with another quote from Pride and Prejudice, this time from Mr. Collins, just uh, running through my head that it is by no means certain that another offer of marriage will ever be made to you. Um, I was 31 at the time and I just resigned myself to being an old maid for the rest of my life. But I'll tell you that in the moments that followed that were lonely or sad, understanding and knowing that I had chosen that for my life, that nobody chose that for me, I chose it for myself. That actually brought me the most comfort and the most confidence that I could be me. I could be who I am. Um, and I just, I'm so grateful for that experience because it wasn't even what, seven years later, <laughs> seven years later, I meet Dennis and I'm like, this is what I want. This, this is the love, the very deepest love that will induce me into matrimony. This is who I want. This is my partner. And I was just so grateful that God had confidence in me to make my choice. Nobody told me, nobody told me what to do. I chose it and I chose Dennis and he chose me. And in that choice, in that autonomy is such a powerful love that if somebody else had told me to do it, it wouldn't be the same. I chose him and he chose me. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. Um, 
And now <laughs> we start the waiting for children, which is excruciating. Um, I have a I have a lot of friends that struggled with infertility, a lot of friends that have adopted children, a lot of friends who have done IVF. This is far more common a problem uh, or a, an experience, I should say. It's far more common an experience than we realize. Um, I have a, my friend, um, she's adopted three children, and she says that infertility in the church is a one-way ticket to feeling worthless. And I, <laughs> I know many women who, and men who will echo that, that statement. Um, I assume that we'd get, we'd have babies right away. I didn't have anything in my family history that would indicate that we'd have trouble. My mother had four children with no problems. My older sister had five beautiful, healthy daughters. She only had one very early miscarriage in between the last two, I think. And, um, so I didn't think we would have a problem. And besides that, we had put, <laughs> we had put all the obedience coins into the proverbial blessings vending machine. We did everything right. So we should be receiving the blessing. And um, God doesn't work that way. And life doesn't work that way. Immortality doesn't work that way. Um, so I was 39 when we married. And fertility for women drops dramatically. I don't have the numbers, but it drops dramatically after 35. Um, but we still had faith and hope. We were praying. We were keeping our covenants. We were going to church. We were being obedient. Of course, God would bless us with babies. Um, about 18 months into our marriage, we lost our, we lost our first pregnancy. And it was less than seven weeks. I remember very clearly I had only experienced morning sickness for, what, three days. And then I woke up on Christmas Eve, I believe it was. I woke up on Christmas Eve and I had no morning sickness. And I knew something had gone wrong. And we lost that first baby. Wow. And then we lost four more. Wow. All before seven weeks. So there wasn't really any time for me to feel any, to feel pregnant except for that first one. Um, but I mean, I can't, if you've experienced miscarriages, like women know how this feels and it's excruciating, it's painful. It's, um, but it's incredibly common to have miscarriages. And so Many, 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 many women in the church have had miscarriages. Um, but for us, it was really, it was really tough. We started doing um, medicated fertility treatments. We did a couple of um, a couple of rounds of intrauterine insem insemination, so artificial insemination, and neither one of those took. Um, and so we were pursuing adoption at the same time. So we got our home study done. We were trying to figure out our route to adoption. Um, it was just a very, very difficult, difficult time. I, we stopped short of doing IVF because it was clear that my, my, my body, my, my eggs didn't work. They were just genetically inferior. Um, and that happens to a lot of women when you're, when you're older, um, your eggs just are old. You're mm. born, you're born with a lot of people don't know this. You're born, women are born 
with the number of eggs that they're going to have and they won't ever produce more. And as you age, so do that your eggs. Mm. And so the genetic quality deteriorates dramatically um, as you pass your mid thirties. Um, so we just, we decided not to go to the expense of IVF. Um, and that was, that was, that was a good choice for our family. I didn't think I could handle going through that expense and then losing another baby. Um, but the hard thing is, and the thing that I've only ever really told Dennis and maybe a couple other people is that I was keeping just this really big secret, which was that I didn't actually want to be pregnant. Um, and this is really hard to say out loud because um, I'm supposed to. I'm a woman. I'm supposed to want to be pregnant. I'm supposed to want to have babies. Um, I wanted to be a mom, but being pregnant terrified me. And I know a lot of women are going to say it terrifies everybody. Of course, you're scared. But this was different. I had gone through so much um, praying and waiting and fasting and having blessings delayed, 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 that I didn't have any confidence that I would ever have a like um, a successful non-turbulent pregnancy. I anticipated all the worst things happening. And I did not want to put my body through that, my mind, my spirit, or my husband. And so it was really hard, but I couldn't say that out loud because what kind of a woman am I if I don't want to be pregnant? And I knew I couldn't, I couldn't even tell Dennis. I'm a... I'm a codependent people pleaser. How could I tell the man I love most in the world that I didn't want to, you know, birth his child? <laughs> like it, <laughs> it was really painful for me. So I just, I kept it all to myself. I think I told him what a year, six months ago, a year ago. Um, and what he said to me was that I could have told him at any time and wow. he would have loved me. Wow. He would have loved me anyway. Wow. Um, he's, he's amazing. I could do a whole podcast on how wonderful he is, but, um, <laughs> But it was just, it was really hard because all of my tears during that time were messy and complicated and filled with all of this, filled with relief, filled with pain, filled with failure and all the gamut of emotions. And I could, like, people would see the, oh, she's sad she lost a baby or, oh, she's sad she's not pregnant anymore or, or she's, she can't get pregnant but it was far more complicated and far more difficult to talk about. Um, oh, let's see. Um, anyway, that, that was really complicated for me. <laughs> um, so I am grateful that during this time we had just, we were in an amazing ward. Um, I was serving in the young women at the time and, um, and my husband had an amazing job with just some of the most wonderful humans on the planet. Um, I was blessed with women who just rallied around me. And even if they, even if I couldn't talk about the really painful stuff for me, the really complicated stuff for me, at least I knew that there were women out there who could rally around me. Um, my, starting with my amazing sisters. I mean, there was this one morning where I had gotten yet another negative pregnancy test and Dennis texted one of them that morning and said, Hey, I think Valerie could use a little help today. My, 
my two sisters showed up with my favorite cream frappuccino from Starbucks <laughs> and um, Cafe Zupas, and they just they just came and they sat with me. One of them was married with five kids, and one of them was still single, but they both just they just loved me. My sisters are rock stars, and I I'm just I'm so grateful for them. And then in my ward, I had women who would just drop by cards and flowers. And one woman gave me a blanket that I still have that just means so much to me. Um, but Dennis, on the other hand, he didn't, he didn't see any of that support for himself. Um, and it wasn't just me going through all of this stuff. Um, Dennis was hurting just as much as I was. We were grateful that we had one, there was one man in the ward who had walked this difficult road with his wife um, through infertility and adoption and failed adoption. And, and he came over and he shared um, his experience with, with me and Dennis. And it, that was really beautiful and wonderful, but nobody else said a word to Dennis. It's like he didn't matter or this wasn't happening to him, but it very much was happening to him too. Um, so that was really painful for him. Um, we had a, one of the most difficult periods of this time was that we had a, a planned adoption. We had been working with an expectant mom for about four months and she chose to parent, uh, when the baby was born, which absolutely her right. We are fully supportive of that. That's, um, but as far as our side of things, um, it was really really difficult because we had planned for this baby for four months and bought things and bought things and planned our future and we loved this little girl and i don't think you can really understand the pain of losing a baby that was never yours to begin with wow um it's a really difficult thing to go through. So um, if anybody has someone in their life that has experienced a disrupted adoption like that, um, they need a lot of love <laughs> because it's really, really hard. Um, and I think after that, we just shut down. It was just, it was too much. Um, we were really angry. At God, we were really angry at the church for making us feel like this was our only choice as a married couple was to have children. Um, we were just super angry. Um, and why give us this commandment and then and then not provide the way for us to accomplish this? It just felt so disorienting. And so we just, we, sh we just shut down, <laughs> um, our, just, just as a note, our daughter that came to us through adoption was born four months later after this failed adoption. So, um, I mean, there is a happy <laughs> part of this, but, um, and we talk about that a little bit later, but it was a really painful and difficult time. Um, I, uh, I'm really grateful for the women who supported me. Uh, it's not, I know that not every woman, not every woman, not every couple has 
uh, the support that we've experienced. Um, not even, you know, my husband didn't even experience the support that I did, but, um, I do have several friends that were in the single space or the infertile infertility space or the LGBTQ space where the doctrines and the culture, it was really hard to find a place for them. Uh, it's really hard to see yourself in eternity when your eternity doesn't match what the ideal is supposed to be. Um, I know some of my friends have left the church. Some of them have stayed. Um, I, one of my friends, um, she was a really good friend during our single days. And, uh, she told me that the last straw for her, she was struggling trying to find her place in the church. And the last straw for her was that she, she gave me permission to share the story, by the way. Um, she went to church and she was walking in and there was a woman with, I don't know how many children, but several children, a babe in arms and toddlers in tow. And, uh, that woman was walking behind her. And so my friend held the door for her. And as the woman passed through the, my, my friend said to the woman, uh, looks like you have your hands full. And the woman turned back and looked at her and said, better full than empty. And my friend walked back to her car and never went back to church. Um, what we say to each other matters and how we choose to present this doctrine of the family, the traditional family matters. Um, it is really painful to navigate the church as a single and childless woman with the unrelenting focus on the nuclear family. Um, but this is not the church of the traditional nuclear family. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And as far as we know from the record we have, Jesus spent his entire mortal life single and childless. We don't worship the family, but for someone who is single and childless in the church, it really looks like we do. Um, talk after talk. And I, I, do, I don't begrudge. I don't. I don't want us to not talk about the family because family is important. But we don't talk about individual value and worth nearly enough. Um, time and time again in the New Testament, Jesus prioritizes the individual in front of him. Um, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the woman with the issue of blood. All of these women, Jesus knew them and he loved them and he addressed their concerns as an individual, not as part of the family system that they were involved with. Um, they were individuals first. The living water he gave them was personal and it wasn't contingent on their future marital or parental status. Um, Jesus didn't even uphold the traditional gender norms of his day. The story of Mary and Martha where Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet and learning and, and absorbing all of this doctrine. That was a very masculine thing to do. Men were the ones that were students and teachers. And Mary was stepping outside of the gender norm to participate in learning the gospel and in progressing personally and individually. And Martha was 
doing a traditional female role of serving and preparing. And Martha got mad and said, hey, Jesus, tell her to come help me. This is her job, right? And what Jesus, (laughs) I love this story so much because Jesus refused to let Mary be robbed of her individual choice and her individual worth to decide for herself what she wanted to do in that moment. Jesus said, Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. He didn't say one was better than the other, and he didn't encourage Martha to come and make the same choice as Mary. He said, I'm not going to take this away from her. This is good. Um, I think in our day, if a woman chooses to, chooses to spend her life in a meaningful career, instead of getting married and raising children, shouldn't we follow Jesus's example and not take that away from her through our judgment and condescension? Her choice is valid. If she wants to have one child, if she wants to have no children, if she wants to get married or not get married, it doesn't matter because she is worthy and she is worth something all on her own. Um, So whenever I'm confronted with some teachings in the church that don't really sit well with me that I struggle with from either a feminist perspective or um, just an experience perspective, Uh, I just remember this quote from Joseph Smith. The fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven. And all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages unto it. Jesus is the center, and he is the doctrine that doesn't change. And I feel really strongly that we need to make sure that we are emphasizing Jesus as the center of our doctrine. Um, So I mentioned before that our daughter came to us pretty unexpectedly. Um, She, uh, (laughs) it was my 42nd birthday and we received a call from a woman who had found us on adoption.com and Uh, She said she was in labor. Are we serious about adopting? Because she'd had us picked out for quite a while. And we were like, yes, of course. (laughs) And we rushed rushed to the hospital and we got there about an hour after she was born and we were with her ever since. But um, so that was a miracle, huge miracle for us. Um, But since becoming a parent to a beautiful daughter, um, I just... (laughs) I want so much more for her than what I had for myself. And I remember sitting with her. um, She was taking a nap on my my chest, and I was watching the first all-female spacewalk. She was about eight months. It was in October of 2019. And watching that all-female spacewalk and these incredible women who just (laughs) were using their skills and their talents and just amazing ways. Um, I just sobbed like a baby. I just, I wanted my daughter to be able to, to know that she could do that. Um, when I was growing up, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a ballerina. I wanted to be a singer, a CIA agent or a doctor. I wanted all these things. And that's my ADHD coming through. Cause I couldn't ever settle on just <laughs> one, but I wanted all of those things, but the only thing that I was allowed to do that I thought 
in my that I internalized. The only thing that I felt like I was allowed to do was to be a wife and a mom. And so I didn't spend any time really developing my own set of skills, really understanding what I could offer to the world. Um, this was definitely the start of my feminist awakening. Um, I just want her to know that her life is hers, that she deserves to be happy and fulfilled, whether she is single, married, a mother or childless. Um, there's a scripture in the Book of Mormon that I absolutely love, but I am going to paraphrase it because I need it to be written a different way. Um, Eve fell that woman may be, and woman is that she might have joy. We are not here to wait for our lives to begin. We are here to be happy and to learn and grow from our own experience and our own agency, not someone else's. Um, another thing that makes motherhood really super complicated um, is uh, the teachings and discussions we engage in surrounding Heavenly Mother, um, specifically uh, to borrow from Carolyn Pearson. We live in a motherless house. Um, and for me, how that presented to me to be told over and over again um, that the most important destiny that I have is to be a wife and a mother. Um, but then to not have any personal contact with my divine mother. Um, that was hard for me. We are instructed by our male leadership that we pray to the father, not to the mother. And as Carolyn pointed out on your podcast recently, all of our discussions about deity are very male-centric. Um, we pray to the Father, we have a brother Savior, and we have a male conscience in the Holy Ghost. Where am I as a woman in the eternal realms? Am I destined to be a numbered wife that spends eternity birthing children that don't even talk to me or that barely know I exist during the most pivotal moment of their eternal progression? If that is my eternal destiny, how do I possibly find hope or happiness in that? But we're conditioned, we're taught to want that more than anything, to be a wife and a mom. And where is our mom? Where is our eternal mother? Um, for women who struggle with understanding Heavenly Mother, I, I just, I need to put in a plug for Catherine Knight Sontag. She wrote a book called The Mother Tree, Discovering the Love and Wisdom of Our Divine Mother, where she helps us identify the symbolism of Heavenly Mother throughout the scriptures. It has been incredibly healing for me personally because it gave me reasons to celebrate my femininity that was separate from motherhood. Mm. And that's why I love this book so much. She does talk about the creative power of women and of birth and all of that. She does talk about that, but that's not the entirety of what the divine feminine is for us. And so this book was really healing to me as someone who's never birthed a child. Um, and I just want to, um, so she taught, I'm going to summarize a little bit. She talks about how, um, masculine progression is very linear and direct and feminine progression is very cyclical. Um, and when they're merged, when they're, when they work together, when masculine and feminine energies work together, it's this upward spiral of, um, progression. Uh, but she says that we see many attempting a purely upward trajectory demarcated by performative markers 
And that's what I felt wife and mother were for me. Checklist. Check. I'm a wife. Check. I'm a mom. But that's not, um, but that's not what a truly united masculine and feminine energy brings um, as far as eternal progression goes. And then she also says this, she says, um, an express, as expressed in the conceptualization of yin and yang, the feminine and masculine reside inside each of us. As children of divine parents, we each hold within ourselves the potential of a full realization of feminine and masculine qualities. And because we are all unique individuals, unique expressions are expected. There isn't a prescribed way to manifest these parts of us or the expression that we must relate with all iterations on an infinite spectrum. Part of coming to know deity and ourselves is being able to sift out what true femininity and true masculinity are for us, as opposed to traditions or cultural constructs. It takes a balance of perspectives and gifts to fully actualize our potential. And that's what I felt was missing for me personally. I didn't understand that about myself. I was checklisting it. Wife, mom. Those were my checklist items. And I didn't understand that there's this whole beauty of feminine and masculine progression that is evident in both of us. I just, I can't say enough about this book. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Um, so I've been talking a long time. It's good. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I think our listeners are glad you've been talking. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> um, so just, I know a lot of people will look at my story and say, oh, well, she got everything she wanted. She's married to her perfect partner. She has a beautiful daughter. Um, and that's not the point of my story. I also really don't want um, people to use the phrase, just wait for the Lord's timing. <laughs> because I see our lives as being co-created with God. And if we partner with God in the creation of our lives, um, we're far more likely to find fulfillment and reward regardless of our circumstances. Um, like my life hasn't finally started. If I can put it in those words, my life has not finally started because I have a husband and kids or a kid. My life has always been going. Um, it wasn't the end of my struggles to get married and have a child. Um, this is all encompassing. This is my life. Um, and I spent so much time waiting and waiting and waiting and not creating my life for myself. Um, but like I said in the beginning, I have a thousand regrets, none at all. And if this path is the only way I could get Dennis and Audrey, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Um, but they're part of my progression. They're not all of it. They're not the end. They're not the beginning. They are encompassed in this um, entire life and experience. Um, so that's <laughs> that's my story. And I just the reason I want to share it is because I don't I don't want women to feel 
that they have no worth outside of marriage and kids. I want them to know that they are valued, they're valuable, they're important. And all of the talents and skills, however we show up, it matters. It matters that you're here. It matters that you serve. It matters that you choose what path you want for yourself and not have it chosen for you. You know, we've done 600 podcast listeners and kind of think we're at the finish line, at least of hearing new concepts and new principles and new perspectives. But wow, is all I can say. Um, this was a transformative podcast for me personally. This is different than any podcast we've done. And there are listeners listening that are rewinding, writing down phrases you said that are answers to their prayers. I promise that is happening. And there will be things that I've, I've written down um, that will be different for everybody. Things that you didn't even think were particularly impactful. <laughs> This is so empowering for the women of our faith and for the men to better support, love, and see women and see the struggles that they face that don't need to face, that are culturally driven and, you know, I just hesitate to talk too much because I don't want to distract from the feelings you're feeling about Valerie's podcast. I love the scripture in Moses. I've heard that scripture a lot of times, but I've never thought about it the way I thought about it while you were talking about it. Um, and the empowerment you felt in that, and the empowerment you felt to make a faith-based decision not to marry that guy that proposed to you. And you, your courage, even though you wanted to be married, you weren't driven by the love of the institution. You were driven by your own personal decision. And I think that's a great way to make decisions. And I love that you're creating worth now, not later. My wife used to always tell the says it's better to be single and wish you were married than married and wish you were single. <laughs> and she was trying to get them not to be just in love with the institution of marriage. Um, which you, but you've taught some things that are just creating worth right now and being complete right now. Um, I can't put into vocabulary as well as you've said it. I'm just so moved. Like, you're courageous, you're vulnerable, you're brave, you're authentic, you're faithful. I love your thoughts about what the church is. We have a testimony of Jesus Christ. And focusing on that seems to do better in the long term mm -hmm. as we navigate. I love the people that were supportive to you and the things that they did. There were some really wonderful nuggets of what people did that weren't awfully complicated, but they were present. And you've introduced some vocabulary I've never heard about a disruptive adoption. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's probably if you're in that space of adopting, you've got a whole set of vocabulary that I'm not even familiar with. Yes. <laughs> so thank you for all those that are walking that road. and. I'm glad your wonderful husband is here with you. Um, I'm glad you found each other. Me too. <laughs> he speaks. <laughs> He's kind of, any, um, if I'm going to go off script a little bit, before we went live, we're recording us on a Sunday, and you came in with 
um, the pin you wear to church. Mm-hmm. And then you talked about why you wear that for your three-year-old daughter. You want to talk about that? Absolutely. Um, so I wear a rainbow pin to church every Sunday. And um, one of the reasons that I do is I have some very close uh, friends and family who identify on the LGBTQ spectrum. And um, I love them very, very much. And I've seen some of the pain that they went through in coming out to family and friends um, and how often it was later in life, um, well beyond when they're starting to figure it out. Um, and I, I don't have any statistics on this, but I believe most people um, really understand their sexual identity when they're in their early teens, some even earlier than that. And um, as I watched some of my family and friends come out of the closet, I, I thought about my daughter at three years old, and I'm not trying to project anything onto her, but my, my thought was, what if it's my daughter? What if this is the path my daughter is going to walk? And just the feeling was so strong to me that she needs to know before, before she hits those difficult and trying times, she needs to know that her mother and father will be loving and compassionate and supportive from the gate. She needs to grow up with that knowledge that um, whoever she is and however she, however she presents in life, that she'll be loved and she'll always have a home with us. And so for me, I wear the rainbow pin to church every Sunday, even though my daughter is three years old, so that she sees it. And it's completely normal for her to know that her mom and her dad will love her however she shows up. So that when she starts to think about sexuality, when she starts to explore those feelings and emotions, we can have open and honest and candid discussions about where she is. Um, I, I don't want her to ever be afraid to talk to us about anything that's difficult for her. And I feel like for me, the rainbow symbolizes acceptance of everything, of all people. And so if she does identify on that LGBTQ, um, in that group, she knows, she already knows that mom and dad will love her regardless. And she's accepted regardless. And she will have a home with us regardless of whatever she goes through in life. Um, and so that's why I wear it. And for the kids at church who don't have that in their own homes. I just think that's an act of love. And uh, I would think your daughter is going to feel safe at opening up to mom and dad about the realities of her life. Because of the principles, you, I don't think it's going to confuse her into being something she's not. No. I think that's kind of a fear narrative. I think she's going to be who she is, but she's going to know mom and dad will accept her. And mm-hmm. then I think her worth gets established really early in her life, like right now, because of your parenting skills and your lived stories. And so I think we just do better with each generation. You're very respectful to your mom. I love her. <laughs> and this is a, a love story about your mom, but it's also recognizing that we can do better. And so you're and so you transfer all this to your daughter. 
and to the other people in your lives. And I think that's how we know better. We do better. Mm -hmm. And I hope each generation of parenting is better. I hope my kids are better than I was. <laughs> um, one of the chapters of this book that's coming out um, is sort of healing from church-generated pain. And you've had a fair dose of that. But the question is more like, I don't know how close, why do you stay? Because you've had some really difficult experiences in the church. Um, and you're still in the church. Yeah, That's a spontaneous question. Are that you is okay? a spontaneous question. How do you? Um, and I realize you're honoring everybody's story here, including that dear friend who had that experience and left and has never been back. So this isn't meant to be prescriptive, but there may be some people who are trying to figure out a way to stay and recognize you know all the complexities and have decided to stay. Um, this, is what, this is what we're navigating. Um, I love the church. This is my home. This is where I, this is where I, I learned. This is, this is where I learned God. This is where I learned Jesus. Um, I guess it, it feels a lot like a family relationship to me that you don't leave a family because things are difficult. I mean, sometimes you may need to step away if it's toxic or if it's, or if it's hurting you, if there's abuse. Um, and so some people may need to step away for those reasons. Um, for me, um, I, I have to say it's complicated because this is my family. This is my home. This is my spiritual home. Um, it w I don't think it would be any better anywhere else. Um, but I also really feel strongly that um, uh, I've heard a, a, a few people, uh, a few podcasters talk about um, holding space, uh, holding the, 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 the doors to the tent open. Um, and then I believe there's a, there's a, uh, scripture in Isaiah and I'm, my ADHD is going to not give me the right, <laughs> right exact scripture, but it's about, um, it's about widening the stakes of Zion. Um, I am, I am all for a wide tent church, bring them all in, let God do the sifting. I don't need to do the sifting. God does the sifting. I do the gathering. And so if I can sit there in a congregation and if my rainbow pin and my comments about, um, about love and compassion and forgiveness and support and just holding that tent open just a little bit wider, um, I feel like at least right now, that's, a, that's an important mission for me. Um, and I, I just, I just have so much compassion for people who don't fit the narrative, who don't fit the, the perfect example of what a family should be or what a, or what a disciple should be. People who are a little rough around the edges, people who struggle with, um, depression or anxiety or, um, their sexual identity or orientation or their gender identity or people who sit outside the norm. I just, I just have a really soft place in my heart for, 
for those people. And I think part of it is based on this experience that I've shared today. And part of it is based on the experience of loved ones. Um, but I think we need to hold the tent open a little more than we do. And so I'm, I'm sitting on the edge and I'm trying to push that tent out just a little bit more. I assume that's a great answer. Thank you for that. You did great. I thought you would. <laughs> Thank you. You're wondering what's coming next. Yeah. <laughs> the seat talk, got a little hot. <laughs> talk, talk about, I sense you make comments in church that signal that you're a safe person to sort. Do you have people that sort of open up to you um, and know you're a safe person in your congregation or in your circle? Um, I think so. Um, I think based on some of the comments that I've made in Relief Society and Sunday School, um, I think that that has uh, signaled to a few people who are struggling that um, I might, I'm a friend, you know, that um, that they can exist fully and wholly as they are um, with me. And I've made some really amazing, wonderful friends that way. Um, I've got a, a little tiny group within my ward that is just, we're, we're kind of the, <laughs> we're kind of all in this weird space of, uh, um, just figuring things out. And, um, I don't know what I said. Maybe it's my rainbow pin. Maybe it's a comment about, um, not judging people or being inclusive or allowing people to, to have their own path that they're walking something like that. And you just, you just connect with people afterwards and then little by little you share each other's stories. And, um, I think it's really helpful. And it, it's almost undefinable, but from, and I haven't said much today because this is not my story. This is Valerie's story. And that's, that's what she needed to do. Um, but it's undefinable. She has this quality, at least from my point of view, um, People just want to be heard. They want to know that somebody is there to listen when they need somebody to listen. And Valerie might not always have the answer, but she will listen and she will hold that space. And people kind of instinctively see that in her. And that's one thing that attracted to me to her when we were starting to date was she doesn't judge. She lets you get out what you need to get out. And if she can help, she will help. Um, so that's what I see in that space and why people trust Valerie. And, and she's being a little bit humble. <laughs> Lots of people trust Valerie. Um, they know that, you know, if, if you need somebody to talk to, text Valerie. Give her a call on the phone. She will give you every ounce that she has that day. Um, and she'll help. Thank you for that, Dennis. Gotta, I did not pay him to say that. He's just, got, you got a good radio voice too. He does. <laughs> um, I just, I love this principle of communicating to all of us that are, you know, in the church. And I think we all need to do that the way it works for us in our circle of influence. I don't wear a pride pin to the church, um, even though I'm so in this space of trying to be an LGBTQ ally. Um, that's so, and you do. And so I think the principle is there is, I think we all have to follow the impressions we can, that are unique to us to, to create a feeling that Valerie is creating in her circle of influence, where people like Dennis said, just know that Valerie listens and, 
they just kind of know that complicated stuff Valerie can handle. And I have complicated stuff. And so that's a spiritual gift. And it's it's healing to have people in your in our lives. So you probably have this official ministering assignment <laughs> with sisters on your LDS duels, but you have this unofficial ministry in your circle of influence and now in a broader circle because of this podcast. So that's an invitation for all of us that are just trying to create Zion and extend the take stakes of Zion. But part of it is by doing the things the Valerie's invited. But um, I'm going to kind of close, but, you know, I have to read this. <laughs> the Henry Noren quote, you know, is obviously Valerie knows this well. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. So I don't want to minimize the deserts and give them purpose. This was all just so you could heal other people. I want to sit with you all the desert pain you have mm-hmm. <laughs> and not sort of say it's over now that you're married and have a kiddo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it, and this is me kind of talking to listeners that are in really brutal deserts. And, and I'm not just saying it'll wait there, but I'm saying, you know, you do become, even in your current deserts, you become wounded healers for others. Some of the most difficult situations I work with that sort of off the record with people in my circle are really in really difficult deserts, but they're also helping people, even though their desert mm-hmm. is so barren and so hot and so dry and so hard to see the end that they're still able to help people. And it's just remarkable to me that they can do that when their old life challenges. And you have to find boundaries. You can't just, you got to take care of yourself. But, you know, thank you for, thank you for what you've done for other women and men and all the different child situations that people are experiencing and people haven't experienced any of these, just the tools you've given all of us to have better perspective, better vocabulary, better tools. I think there's a lot of good people in our faith that want to do the right thing. We just don't talk about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've never been to a training meeting to talk to a couple that's having infertility challenges or adopting. And I wish we did sort of this pragmat, this sort of, you know, that kind of work sometimes. Yeah. But we don't. And so we learn other ways. Maybe mm-hmm. that's okay. So any closing thoughts from either of you? I will say in the show notes, we'll listen, we'll link to Catherine Knight, um, Catherine Knight's book that you referenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, Catherine, Catherine Knight's Sontag. Sontag mm-hmm. um, and we'll link to that because that's a great book. And we'll link to, I'll tag you on Facebook if that's sure. okay. Yeah, so that's people fine. can find you yeah. if they want to and message you. Are you okay yeah, with absolutely. that? Absolutely. Sure. So I'll do that. So look in the show notes for, um, or at least in my Facebook post, Valerie's Facebook. So I'll tag her there. Any more thoughts either of you'd like to share? Life is messy. (laughs) And that's about the only thing that I know for certain right now. It's that life is messy and we just need to love each other and support each other and help where we can. And we're going to fall short and we're going to fall flat and we're going to make choices that other people don't like. And it's just messy. It's just all messy. All right. So thank you. That's Valerie Barton and her husband, Dennis and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn and Love.